Professor Wright, welcome to the Hero's Journey of Economy podcast. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Thanks very much for inviting me. Really liked your book on genius. Can you just give the overarching theme of the book and how I think it was a different lens on how we think of geniuses in our society? Well, I started first with a definition of genius, which I'll come back to in, in just a second, uh, because I thought it was very important to get a framework for a discussion out there first. Uh, we all, everybody, we all talk about Donald Trump periodically calls himself a, gen, a genius. Uh, Kanye West is called a genius, Kim Kardashian, et cetera, et cetera. So, but what are we talking about here? We should define that. So having defined it, then I began to, to try to work through what I saw, having studied geniuses over a 15-year period, uh, set of commonalities, extract from their lives a set of commonalities that might be interpreted as some, I won't call it a secret, anything as silly as that, but, but, but um, uh, a cohort of enablers that these people all had that maybe I too could learn something from. What's my takeaway here for myself personally, for my children, and now for uh, any one of my seven or our seven grandchildren. And that took me through, as I say, these agents or enabler of genius, and just to name a couple of them, uh, curiosity, childlike imagination, persistence, hard work, uh, capacity for contrary thinking, capacity for relaxation, capacity for concentration to know when it's time to get to work and how to get the work done. So that's how I, I got, got started with this uh, in interest in some of these uh, famous minds over time, extracting then commonalities among them, and uh, um, ultimately uh, shaping it all within this framework of a definition of genius. I really like the way you outlined that work ethic was one and, and resilience. And do you feel like it can be achieved in some kind of, not that, every, not that we necessarily our goals to have uh, geniuses out there, but for people to be thinking different, one of the things I think that was a, a common theme is uh, these people had, or the combination of these situations aren't maybe what the normal person would experience in life all the time. Uh, not to pick on schools or, or different things, but it, it seemed like they had experiences. I'm just wondering, could we foster these things now? Yeah, yeah, I think you can, but it's important. I, I think we may be, we, uh, may be fostering the uh, wrong kind of things. We tend to emphasize, and I was as guilty of this as the next party, and I watched my grand or my children begin to take the same approach with the grandchildren, and I've become sort of skeptical about this basic approach, and they're horrified by starting, you know, don't worry about those grades so much. Just make sure you're taking a lot of tough courses, and when I say a lot, very different courses. Don't worry about that, those ERB scores or the SAT scores or the uh, MCATs or whatever it might happen to be to get you into medical school or, or whatever. What you should worry about is a highly diverse uh, skill set. Um, so when I started saying, well, don't worry too much about your grades, my children think that this is not a good thing to be teaching the grandchildren, and I've rusticated at that point. Um, but I do begin to think that there are things that we can do, and I've been 
been doing them in my own life, and I think I, I've made my uh, uh, life a lot happier <laughs> domestically and happier with myself. And I think I'm sort of more efficient, more more savvy, get better work product done, and work better with people by employing some of the things that I learned from watching these great minds, and in some ways um, employing things that these great minds uh, did that we should never do. Um, and uh, they, uh, the fact that they uh, changed the world doesn't mean that they were always good human beings or did the right sort of thing. So yes. these are some of my th thinking about this. I'm a little bit surprised where I ended up. The premise of this podcast is all around people taking a hero's journey. One of the things that Joseph Campbell pointed out in that book is the second step of maybe the call to action is, is the heroes refusing the journey. It's a common theme. As humans, we, we tend to be a little bit more sheepish than we would like to admit. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Like, do we all have this capability of, of tapping into some of these things that, that these same geniuses have? Well, I think the geniuses, in a sense, don't have a choice. I think, um, and that's why I'm surprised, and it may be different. Um, when we're dealing with Joseph Campbell, and, um, and I've got, got the book right back here. I have it somewhere, somewhere, Mike, here it is. Yeah, Joseph Campbell, the hero with a thousand faces. And I remember seeing Bill Moyers interview Campbell, yeah. public television, years and years and years ago. Um, there is uh, sometimes this sense of, of denial. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not worthy, sort of uh, maybe a false denial. I'm not worthy of this particular uh, venture. Um, who, who am I to, to save the world or to be the chosen hero? But that's not my experience looking over this uh, group of, uh, of exceptional people, really from, from, say, Shakespeare and Newton and Einstein and Picasso and Gates and so Zuckerberg, uh, Musk, people like that, is that they don't really have a choice. They are obsessed by what, what they see in the world. They see a disjunction. They don't like this junction, disjunction. Something is out of place. Steve Jobs famously said, I just got a, a bug up my rear, um, that all computers should come in a plastic case. So it's not, it's, it's almost that these geniuses are not great at self-analysis. They don't sit there and say, why am I doing this? What am I doing this? Is this the right thing to do? They just see something and they're going to fix it. And they don't look back. They don't look sideways. They just look forward and pursue this almost maniacally. And sometimes the people that are around them, their families and their immediate, uh, but let's say employees, become sort of roadkill in this drive, this race forward. So is it good that we don't have a lot of geniuses out there it, like our society would be kind of you know if we had a bunch of Elon Musk or Stephen Jobs because one of the things you know you know I always hear you know the test scores in the United States are just getting worse every year and then the counter to that is in, in this in the Norwegian countries certainly do much better than us on almost every type of standardized testing out there mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. but the counter to that people will say is those countries didn't invent Google or the Tesla car, or Amazon, or the web, or, mm -hmm. the, or the personal computer, <laughs> or, yeah. you know, like, when was the last thing you actually bought from one of those countries, you know, or what was the last innovative thing that came out of those countries? So does our system maybe through genius more than others? Or what do you think the, the magic sauce is? 
Um, that, yeah, that takes the whole uh, issue in a slightly different direction, having to do with political systems. Yeah. Um, and one could make a case, I think, that just as these individuals are rebellious and they're individuals, they're very individualistic, they're not great team players. Um, and that type of mentality that we have in the United States, maybe don't be a great team player, just get out there, be the, the renegade rebel, as Steve Jobs said, think different. Remember that, that yeah. Apple TV commercial and then all the great geniuses, Einstein, Picasso, et cetera, Buckmeister, Fuller, uh, Muhammad Ali would, would stream by. And um, what he's encouraging there is rebellious behavior. Now, rebellious behavior works particularly well in a capitalist state, in a free, free, free enterprise capitalist state. It works a lot less well in, in totalitarian capitalism, which is essentially what goes on in China these days. And, and I'm not sure even what to call it in Russia, something, I suppose, in between. Um, but, but it is not um, by accident that these rebellious people send, tend to end up in a political system that is highly chaotic. And we watched some of that chaos play out here in the last couple of weeks. It's fragmented, it's chaotic, but in that kind of chaotic cauldron, uh, we have an environment that may foster the making of new and great ideas our society, not on purpose, just lends itself well to the creation of these people just based on the chaos. And the, it, it's, it's right. a, a rich soup of maybe capitalism and individualism and, and uh, right. decent education, but, uh, yeah. you know, but, you know, not a system that necessarily penalizes people from going outside the lines. Yeah. I, I wish the educational system were better. I don't take, I, I don't take, um, solace from the fact that the scores are so low outside of the United States. I think it's very important for people in an election situation to have the capacity to understand what it is that is involved and that what they are arguing for, you know, we, we have to have freedom, but you, you need, we need an education system that, sh that would show us what freedom is and it would show us how to study the constitution and what the guide, the rules, the guidelines are here for this kind of thing. Um, totalitarian, totalitarian states that, that even though you might be holding up a flag and arguing for freedom doesn't mean that you understand what freedom is and are willing to truly encourage free and diverse thought. From a genius standpoint, it is good that we're, we are not all geniuses, that it's <laughs> that it's a certain population. <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, too many chiefs and then the Indians, right? <laughs> right, it would be chaotic if everyone did act like yeah. Elon Musk and, and Steve Jobs, like who, you know, to a certain degree, someone's got to actually do the work and not that they didn't work hard, but yeah. there's leaders and followers, correct? Right, you got to get, the, you got to have the ideas and then you got to get the product out the door. Now, occasionally one person can do this, a Mozart can do this, a Picasso can do this, Beethoven can do this, philosophers can do it. You got to think up the ideas and then you got to write down the book and you got to publish the book and you got to encourage people, people to, um, 
uh, to read it. But in, in, let's say, in technology business manufacturing, it's the ideas that come first, and then you can, if you have sufficient capital, and that's why it's not a bad thing to associate money and genius. If you have this latent form of labor and materials, you can employ them to execute your creative idea. And it's at that point that the people such as myself, the non-geniuses come, come in of this world come into play. Does it seem that the geniuses do come from the arts and business world? And what I mean by that is, are they not directed towards more humanitarian fields? Or did you you see that they tend to be successful commercially, either in arts or in business? Well, not necessarily. I mean, one, I think politics is hugely important and one could look, who, who are the, the uh, obviously there are people like Winston Churchill that, yeah. that save, one could make a case, save the Western hemisphere for liberal democracies. I mean, liberal yeah. mean free democracies. Yeah. Um, and then we could look at our own country. It's pretty remarkable with those people who came together first for the Declaration of Independence and then more importantly, perhaps in these terms, the uh, United States Constitution for writing the United States Constitution, which is a remarkable document, not only for us, but for many countries now around the world. Uh, So people like Washington, Jefferson, Hamilton um, and John Adams, and of course, maybe most of all featured in my book, Hidden Habits of Genius there, uh, Benjamin Franklin, people yeah. people such as that. And we do not want to miss, and we should all every day just go read things like uh, his second inaugural address. We should never miss Abraham Lincoln, who really was a very deep thinker, um, a wonderful um, type of political genius, political in the best sense, humanitarian genius, uh, and a beautiful, beautiful writer. Um, uh, And and you probably know this word, and I don't even know this word. With, but with humanity towards all and malice towards yeah. none, etc. Yeah. Let us get on with the work at hand, whatever it might happen to be. Um, the, 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 this is, these are remarkable people. And I would say there are a lot of people like that. Maybe they, they are so much in our midst that we don't notice them. And for that reason, we think of the composers and the painters and maybe some couple of scientists here or there, people like Zuckerberg or Bezos in in business and tech, but there are people that that uh, uh, that that hold society together or lead societies in different directions. To your point, they're not appreciated when they're alive. There was a lot of criticism of Winston Churchill after the war, and obviously yeah. Abraham Abraham Lincoln had his critics when he was alive. And and uh, I'm old enough to remember uh, Muhammad Ali being a champion boxer. And when he died, you know, everyone was saying, oh, he was such a rebellious person. But I remember the press not always liking him. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I loved Muhammad Ali, but I remember there was a lot of critics of him when he didn't want to fight in Vietnam. And I think sometimes we tend to not romanticize, but maybe acknowledge these people after their time rather than the yeah. time that they live. No, you're right, Mike. And as I say in the book there, nobody loves the genius until he or she is dead. Um, <laughs> And then we do because we benefit from the work product. We benefit the the, the creative change that they have wrought. Um, so I, I think that to an element that's that's true. We tend to for uh, forget and forgive, uh, forgive and forget, whatever. Um, and and uh, I think that's that's important 
too. Um, and, and what's the other expression that might be relevant here? Familiarity breeds contempt. Maybe these most of them are watching with pretty contemptible um, uh, uh, but politicians, but maybe they are, as you were saying, so much in our midst. There's, there's so many of them they're sort of right around us that we, we, don't, we don't really notice uh, what they are doing or pay specific attention to what they are doing. And we are not always right. As you were saying, they didn't like Churchill. Indeed, Churchill lost the election after the Second World War. I can't give you the precise date. It might have been about 1946. He was yeah. not reelected. Then I think after a period of four or five years, he was called, ran for election again, and was reinstalled as prime minister. He's, he's definitely one of those that just an amazing life. Is there one that sticks out to you? Because you did a lot of research on all these people. Is there one that sticks out and says, well, uh, I know that's hard given the group of people that you examine, but th was there one that comes to, d that's just your personal favorite out of all? Oh, I had, we all have our personal f favorites. Nikola Tesla is a very interesting guy. Mozart is in, Mozart was the person I started with because I was trained to be a classical pianist, tried to failed at that, never made a dime as a classical pianist, but, it, but I've always was interested in Mozart. I think what you look for, what I, what, what, what's fascinating, and, and here's a good way of com com comparing one with the other, Mozart versus Bach. Bach was an excellent composer, probably the same quality as Mozart, but nobody's interested in Bach because he doesn't have a, a particularly good backstory. Mm. Uh, it doesn't have much in the, the way of a flamboyant or interesting life. So we tend to, to choose our geniuses, not so much of, about what they did, but who they were. And is there a story? Because in the last analysis, humans more say than data and more say than scientific theories or equations, humans are interested in other human beings. How, why do they do what they do? How did they do what they do? It's the human element, I think, that attracts us all. And that's why I was attracted to these very interesting characters, Mozart and Nikola Tesla. Are there things that these geniuses followed that maybe should be more commonplace out in either our education or out in our society more? I think generally speaking, what we tend to do is typecast too soon. And we say, well, you know, parents are particularly guilty of this. They don't want uh, to turn out geniuses. They want to turn out successful people who can, people, children who can pay the bills and pay off the college debt and, and they put food on the table, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we have to figure out uh, what we're after. We're going to uh, turn out those that really change and benefit and make the world a lot better place or successful uh, people who are able to, and that's perfectly worthy. Uh, also, I'm, I fall in that category. Um, uh, I would like to think of a success. I know I'm no, <laughs> no, I'm no genius. So what do we do? I think that we should continue to emphasize, uh, we could call it distributional requirements in schools, the liberal arts. And what that means is not all, just all, a whole bunch of English courses, but as if, you, if you're in STEM and you're, that's where your natural inclination is, get in those humanities courses. Be sure you've had a course in Shakespeare. If you're interested in English literature, be sure you've had a computer science course, be sure you've had a math course, a physics course, and things like, like that. Because it's, it's too early with children to know exactly always what their strengths are going to be. Um, and um, there are a lot of interesting quotes on this uh, uh, um, uh, point. Uh, 
but um, Einstein talks about about this in particular, about how it's very important to free the human spirit to find out what they ultimately will be. So that's one thing. Uh, don't front load too early in your child's education any one activity. Cross train in terms of athletics, cross train in terms of, let's say, join the debate team and the robotics team, uh, cross train in terms of the courses that you t teach in uh, in universities, diversity, because the educational market, you know, used to be you'd go walk, I'm sure you know better than I am, you'd walk into a corporation and you could spend your whole life there working for General Motors or Kodak or Eastman, uh, Eastman Kodak or uh, Xerox or whatever it is, but you can't, nobody does that anymore. Uh, I think the lifespan of the job now is about five years, uh, even, even in technology. It's continually changing. So you got to have diverse skills and be nimble. A lot of the people that listen to this podcast are not younger people, but mm -hmm. maybe people you're in my age. What's it? What's advice for people that you know maybe haven't found their genius? Are there are there certain things that people can do uh, later in their life to tap into some of this or have the experiences of of a genius? I guess ultimately, <laughs> well, I don't. I, I would say now is your chance to be rebellious. I, I think. Um, uh, what, it's almost kind of like the three stages of, of life here when you're young, you're trying to look up to other people and figure out how, how to get ahead so you do what they do. And then when you're middle-aged, you're worrying about what other people are saying about you. When you, At some point, you reach a certain age, uh, you don't care. You shouldn't care anymore what people are thinking or saying about you because actually in point of fact, they're not looking at you at all. <laughs> you don't. You don't matter. The only the other young people matter, but you don't matter. You're assumed to be useless because you've reached the point of, of senility, senescence, whatever. Um, so it's at that point that you can really have the opportunity in life to be yourself. Figure out what you want to do. Um, one of the things that I've decided that I don't need to do in this life is go around in a fancy car. I'd much rather. Uh, sort of think about who I am, what I value. I don't go around in fancy clothes. If you could see me now, I'm sitting here in a, just a t-shirt and I've been <laughs> washing and wearing the same t-shirt uh, with other t-shirts for five, six years now. I, I just don't, don't need this stuff. But I love, what I figured out over time is what I love is reading and I love writing a great paragraph. And I'll sit, I'll obsess about that great, great paragraph and the time will just fly by. So one of the nice things about life is eventually you get to retire or semi-retire and then you have the opportunity to think about about yourself and what values to it uh, what what values you have and perhaps disassociate yourself from the values of others follow follow yourself rather than them one of the things that you made very clear in the book is that geniuses have to be thinking you know if any genius are at island they wouldn't be they have to have an impact on this world make a difference and be recognized. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting uh, interesting point. And it gets back to how are we going to define genius? Now, I define genius uh, there in the first chapter of that book, uh, The Hidden Habits of Genius, with by saying that it takes two to tango, in effect. It takes a creative mind that comes up with a new idea, and it takes a society willing to engage that idea and is so impacted by that idea that it changes. So 
a creator and a receptive society, which brings up something akin to a, an interesting philosophical uh, conceit here. Supposing somebody like Einstein were stranded on a de desert island and he could think up all these great ideas, but there was no way that he could communicate them outside the island or to anyone else, or he chose not to, he didn't want to, would he still be a genius? He could do it, but he didn't do it. But the way I define this is that you have to, uh, you have to make an impact. You have to change society. And if you don't change society, um, uh, then uh, you're not particular. Uh, um, uh, you you don't end up in the pantheon or the hall of fame of, of genius. One of the things that I'm kind of watching with interest is the whole idea of the continent of Africa. Uh, coming online. Um, they have kind of been left out of the whole internet world. And not that, but what'll be interesting is just how many creative minds out in that continent that we don't know about because we just, to their point is they, we had just have never connected with them. Uh, one, because of distance, but two, because of technology. And in the next couple of years, the equivalent, I think, of a quarter of our planet is going to be coming online that we've never heard from before. And I, I just would, what's your perspective on that? I, I know there's some books out there that are really excited about that. And then some are saying, oh, they're never going to be the same. <laughs> but, but if diversity is a strength of our societies, the idea of all these people being heard and being able to create and distribute things in ways that they haven't been able to before could be very interesting. What it could be very, very exciting and, very, and it's a wonderful opportunity. In a sense, people of color have been marginalized in the Western concept of, of genius and, and generally in the economic gain of Western capitalism, just as women have been marginalized. Now that's changing in, on both, in both regards, people of color and also women. Uh, and as I said in there, if you were running the um, what do we call it? The, uh, the creative productive, uh, cre creative idea company or something like that. And you arbitrarily uh, ruled out nine out of every 20 workers, you said, took whatever they came up with and just threw it away. Uh, that wouldn't be a very smart business person. Uh, so th there has to, and we've been throwing away or wasting a lot of human potential in other in parts of, of, as you say, specifically uh, Africa. And that is changing and it's changing uh, not because they have hardwire uh, computers, but because they have cellular reception and can go online uh, to re receive information. They can go online to take university courses. I've had a students when I teach in the summer went online the version of the genius course uh, one young man a pre-med student in South Africa took the entire course off of his cell phone pretty amazing that is amazing as a side topic I just think it's amazing that the universities out there even if you don't take the course a lot of the material is available to read right the lectures all right. that's all that's available you don't get the credit but there's all the material is available for people and it's free online. Yeah, it, that's interesting because one of the things I did about 10 years ago, I had the chance to do this because I got interested in, I actually taught Yale's first online course. This is about back about 2011. Um, 
And they said, why are you a music professor? What are you doing teaching on online music? And then they made me academic director of online education for Yale, <laughs> which was kind of funny because I was very, I still am very bad with technology. I just intuited this was going to be huge. Um, and we began and we, we shopped this around with different sorts of platforms, edX up at Harvard. We talked to Stanford in particular. And ultimately, we decided, decided to go with course, the Coursera platform, which now has about 653 courses all around the world. Uh, uh, to see how this would play out, I ginned up a music course called Introduction to Classical Music. I put it out there. I had really no, and I was given a lot of support by the university. The university really supported me here uh, enormously, and I should thank them for that. Um, so we weren't sure what we were doing and how this would go over at the moment. I could look today, but I think 178,000 people are currently taking this course for free all around the world. I spend my, I spent my morning there uh, just today uh, answering a couple of uh, emails about that on, online course, uh, Introduction to Classical Music. And that's just one of many. I think we now have one. There's a psychology course that has over 3 million people taking it. And it's all free. Oh, yeah. Is that the course of happiness? Is that the yeah, one? Happiness yeah, happiness with, yes. with Lori Santos. Well, she, yes. Lori was on the, um, the, on, the Yale's online um, uh, initiative, the committee to get online education going there at Yale. Of course, what would you think? Do you think the faculty supported us? Do you think a, they thought it was a really great idea? What do you think, Mike? No, I think they, I think they might have thought it was not so great because uh, a threat they to that yeah, tooth yeah. and nail, tooth and oh, you're destroying education as we know it. You're trying to put us all out of business. Of course, like most, almost all other technological innovations that people really embrace, you know, talking movies and color film and things like that. It creates many, many, many more jobs than it destroys. I don't, and it hasn't destroyed anything in the way of college professorate. So that was, that's one, one of the things that's out there for free all around the world. And you can take it in Africa, you can take it in Pakistan, you can take it in, and yes, you can even take it in China if you have a particularly if you have a VPN, <laughs> VPN to, to sort of get you outside of uh, to a uh, kind of neutral zone where you can grab the information quickly. That, that is amazing that that amount of information is out there and available to people, right? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's a real game changer. It's, it's well, it is. And, and I know that you're very interested in this and, you know, uh, and you could tell us, well, well, it's almost as if the four or five steps of innovation, of, of kind of productivity uh, over, over the millennia. So you take us through this, Mike, to, to tell us what those steps were, the evolution of labor. Like from a uh, agricultural to right. yeah exactly you know, to exactly. factory to yeah to you know, to more office work and create and, and that type of thing yeah, from manufacturing to service and and yep. now it's yep. sort of personal experience well all yep. these online courses that are going out to Africa and where where else um, uh, is personal experience personal growth uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to a bureaucracy. Right. It's there's in, in fact, there's no gatekeeper. You know, I, I look at it similar to um, maybe back in the dark ages, you know, the Bible was in Latin and not a lot of people could get it. And, and the printing press really enabled uh, a lot of freedom of thought, whether it was good or bad. <laughs> uh, I think it was for the good, but it started to equalize information and equalize and distribute ideas 
across the masses. This is like that, only a lot different because not only do you yeah. have distribution of information, you have distribution of information from the, let's take the courses at Yale. Those are some of the top thinkers in a certain topic and area of research and they're disseminating this information for free and for other people to pick up on it. It's something that, to your point, the faculty was never that in favor of it because you know you really, that was that was kind of the price to going to the school, right? It was considered. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. That's a good point. And even even the uh, a lot of uh, and this is the same way with regard to building new colleges at Yale. You know what we mean is new dormitories and expanding the enrollment. A lot of the students are against that because they 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 say, well, you know, my parents and my we're ponying up all this money. We want this to be a, an exclusive experience. I always thought that that was kind of wrong-headed about what education was supposed to be. It's really supposed to be for the public wheel, public good. Uh, that's not a good approach to take. I think we'd all agree with that. Yeah, I really loved your book and your perspective on this because it really opened my eyes as to each one of your chapters. I'm like, I started thinking, am I doing this? Am I doing this? <laughs> because the key to Hero's Journey and what Joseph Campbell wrote about was if you really want to transform, and I guess the, the three ways of transformation would be maybe creation, some kind of optimization, or downright change, like you just you know, fundamentally mm -hmm. change something. You definitely have to do something different. And oftentimes, it doesn't necessarily have to be hard, but it oftentimes is either mentally or physically uncomfortable. And it takes you out of your comfort zone. It, that definitely was a running theme in, in some of the things you were talking about, is that these geniuses almost didn't have a comfort zone. They, they yeah. never, they didn't shy away from much. And they were always kind of treading into, they had almost no fear, some of these people, right? I mean, maybe behind the scenes, they would tell their spouse that they were fearful of this or fearful of failure. They definitely stepped into the unknown in a lot of the things that they did. Yeah, and you can just apply this in a very practical sort of way. And, and, and this is, it took me a long time when driving around with my wife. If One, if I got lost, I would never admit it. Two, I was usually so terrified um, that I would try to get back on the path that I knew. And both are really wrong-headed ideas. If we, if you get lost, if you follow this, this kind of metaphor for life, but if you follow the same path day in and day out, what new are you going to learn? How are you going to grow yourself? How are you, how are you going to be all that you can be if you're doing the same thing day in and day out? Now, it's particularly hard here during this pandemic. I wish, gosh, I've had to give up so many really nice trips where I was going to learn so much, and, and now I can't do that. Do that. But, but it, so it is a kind of metaphor for life. And when you get lost, don't look upon it as a failure, but as an opportunity, because you're going to see all these new places that you've never been before. And you could ask, start asking yourself questions about this or that. My favorite um, experience here, and it really struck home one day a year or so ago, when I was in Manhattan in Penn Station. And um, I don't know if you ever go, go in there, Mike, but I, yes. I think it is, it is the busiest train station in the, I think, in the Western world and certainly in the United States because you've got, what, uh, one, two, and three lines, the A train going through and all the tr tr 
through uh, trains from the Long Island Railroad and Amtrak coming in from Connecticut and down from Albany. So it, it's a huge place and, and it's easy to get lost. But, but it, so I was in there trying to figure all, all this out, looking at all these signs and I get on some subway to go down to Soho. I think I was actually meeting the book editor down, down there on 195 Broadway, uh, a little bit farther down. And you just start looking at all the people in the subway. Well, why does that, what's a lunch pail? Why do these people, why is this racially disproportionate here in a subway train? Why are we stopping here at this particular station that has this particular particular name? What is the history of this? How does all this come about? All these things that, that we never think about, if you, if you simply hop in an Uber or something like that and whiz down there, you can, if you get into a different sort of environment, experience a lot of other things. We all know that. We just have to be after ourselves all the time to have the courage to be out there and do it. It's not easy, though. I think sometimes uh, what I've found through at least my research on the hero's journey and talking to people is uh, movies kind of ruin it for us. They kind of romanticize that stepping out. And, you know, you kind of realize the hero's never really going to fail. And the music starts when, the, when Rocky starts working out. Uh, they tend to romanticize some of the harder parts of the journey. Reality is when you're doing this in real life, you don't know where it's going. Chance of failure is incredibly high that sometimes scares a lot of people versus maybe it's it's often not as romantic as can be portrayed sometimes yeah it's a natural fallback position when things go wrong for us to say this is unpleasant i didn't want to be here and i want to get out here get out of this as fast as i can i'm struck by um oprah winfrey once spoke to this point we said Failure is, you shouldn't look up, oh, is it a Harvard commencement? I think you should, failure is um, not failure. It's just uh, life giving you uh, an opportunity to explore something else that you otherwise would not have had. Yeah. Actually, Churchill also said something about that. I think he said that genius is going from experience to experience. Failure, genius is going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's in your book, isn't it? That's in your book. No, oh. no, but it should be. Well, that <laughs> must be in the last book I read because I've just read that within the last. Uh, well, maybe, weeks. maybe if, I, I don't know. Maybe it's in that new and it's quite good. Eric Larson's. Uh, the Splendid and the Vile. Okay. Uh, it could be, it's possible that it's in there. I'm, I'm, okay. I'm not quite sure. Or maybe I picked that up some, it, it, somewhere else. Winston Churchill is great for those quotes, but I've read that recently and I'm like, oh, that is a great perspective because uh, every experience is a learning lesson. And I think sometimes that's not always pleasant, but you do take away. I take a look at some of the worst things that's ever that have ever happened to me. I wouldn't want them to happen again, but I'm, I'm not a worse person for it. You know, I, I think I've, it's, right. You know, it, it's, yeah, that's true. Yeah, if you can survive them, you're not going to be uh, a worse person for it. And just going back to the previous point we, we were making, it caused me to think about Thomas Edison, who said, well, I don't know whether he's trying, it had maybe to do with the filament of the light bulb or the diaphragm for the phonograph. They said, I haven't failed. I haven't failed. I just found 10,000 ways that don't work. Right. Uh, it's like he'd learn he'd learn ten thousand things uh, on his route to success. Yeah, I like that. I like it, the idea of you're in a room with with say five hundred doors or many many doors, 
and you, you know, go to open, you know, or you're heading, boy, that looks kind of interesting over there. I think I'll go be a nuclear physicist. And just as you get that door, that door shuts because you, maybe you didn't do well uh, on the uh, graduate record exam. And then you say, well, I'll be a neurosurgeon. And you head over toward uh, the, the next door, the neurosurgeon door, but then you don't do well on your M MCATs or whatever. And that door shuts. But but as one door shuts, there, there it's just an opportunity for other doors to open. The only critical thing is you've just got to keep moving forward and keep exploring doors. That's sort of the way my life has, has been been. I did try to do lots of different things and ended up doing something very different than I thought I ever would. It's just a great book, a lot of good guidance. Do, do you have any kind of, if you were to sum up some advice, is it just to stay curious? Is that the, is that the key maybe? Or Yeah, curiosity. I think curiosity, it, curiosity is hugely important in this. Um, and I think oddly, relaxation is hugely important too. And that has to do with uh, relaxation, and I spent a whole chapter on this in yeah. the book, and we don't have time to go into the specifics of it here, but it has to do with neurotransmitters and sleep and the importance of sleep, the importance of writing down your subconscious ideas when you come to the, um, them, either when you first wake up in the morning or in the shower, or coming out of the shower, or taking a walk or walking along the beach with regularly uh, pulsating waves out there. All these things that will allow you to relax, it will allow for these ideas that you really do have in your head because you've been curious your entire life and packing things in there. And now when you're relaxed, these barriers between categories of information come down and you can connect these ideas and uh, behold, uh, a new creative insight will arrive. Um, so uh, I guess uh, what I do oftentimes now when I first wake up in the morning is to be productive is to just stay in bed. <laughs> and, and just think? Is that what you're yeah, doing? Yeah, no kidding. Particularly when I'm involved in, intensely involved in trying to finish a chapter, or writing, writing a section of something, think through the issues. Best time to do that, first thing when I wake up in the morning, and I really do, and my wife thinks it is funny, but I, on the nightstand and in the bathroom, I really do have a little, and somebody gave me uh, uh, little books once called Thoughts of Genius or something, just little uh, five by seven notebooks, and I, I write down, <laughs> it should be called Thoughts of a Non-Genius, um, in, in my case write down these thoughts but they come about the best thoughts come about when we least expect them and when we're relaxing i have found that i have to do that more though there are so many people that say i i, I had this idea in the shower that's a kind yeah. of almost like a trite phrase it's so common out there well uh, somebody did a survey on that once a psychologist and 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 it was where do you get your your best ideas First thing in the morning in the shower or at, when you're at work in your office. And 78% of the population said first thing in the morning in the shower. And they're, 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 real, they're real neurological, physiological reasons why that's the case. Professor Craig Bright, thank you so much for writing this book. The name of the book is The Hidden Habits of Genius. I found it just a tremendously great read. It's really well-researched. What, what I really admired about or just enjoyed is that you really put a human face to a lot of these people that, you know, I think sometimes the worst thing we can do to people we admire is maybe make a statue out of them because I think they become a, a little yeah. less, they, they become a little less human. Like if you see a statue of somebody, it's almost like they came from another planet. It's like, no, they yeah. had parents, they had kids, they had issues. They were real people here. 
and they made a huge impact, but they were just, in a lot of ways, they're no different from the average, anybody else, except for the, for the traits that you have outlined. Yeah. Well, I think we'll, we'll conclude by agreeing, Mike, that um, neither one of us want to go out there and become a statue. <laughs> hey, thank you for your time today. I uh, yeah. really enjoyed your book and I, and I appreciate you being part of the podcast. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. Bye.